Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa, Arizona, and other communities like it. I'm Ryan Wozniak. And I'm David Crummy. Thank you for joining us for this, our sixth podcast, but fifth in our book, book club. I'm glad you've made it this long with us, and I hope that you will uh, keep sharing this out with everybody else. And um, hopefully enjoying it a little bit. Well, they came back, so yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm guessing that this like, is their first time. <laughs> this is your first time. We're sorry. <laughs> um, this episode, the continuation of our book club, Jeff Speck's Walkable City, Section Two: The Ten Steps of Walkability, pages 68 through about 104, and the 213 first paperback edition. All right, or if you're uh, it's here, <laughs> that's that's the uh, that's the paper version. Sure, it didn't come up. Um, but first, letters. Yeah, you know, so uh, we continue to have some discussion on Facebook, and we're certainly enjoying that people are telling us that they're enjoying the podcast, or that they're not sure what the hell we're doing on uh, spreading messages that uh, have nothing to do with Mesa. Although we try to find some connections and learn from other uh, so- other city sources, and again, we're. Uh, we're limited in our capabilities and our time to devote to exactly... We're not we're limited, we're amazing, we're awesome, but you guys <laughs> need to pick up because, you know, you can't say that we're, we're faulty. You, If you have an idea, you have to run for it. That's the rule. Yeah, and you can't suggest us work. Um, we had some good conversations. We had that uh, conversation about uh, Seaside, Florida, and they're going to, like, completely tear down all the trees and widen the streets so the the fire truck can move through yeah it totally echoes our last podcast about uh fire departments having their say and running amok so uh there's a good example um one of the other things it wasn't actually on our facebook an article i shared that was um about sprawl repair and uh there's a lot of conversations so galina tachieva has a book called the brawl repair manual but strong towns had an article where they came out and they were saying you know we need to be realistic about sprawl repair and we need to focus those energies we only have so much money and time and so we have to focus those on places where they're going to have the most impact Mm -hmm. Um, which is also what galena says in her book um, although her book is much more lofty in their goals but a couple people were actually like does this mean that in 30 years the other parts of the community are ruined and slums that we've been dealing with for the communities that we have that are 40 or 50 year old now yeah it does get into the conversation of resilience and sustainable cities and if we keep on developing cities in an unsustainable way and they're developing faster than we can repair them it obviously sets up for some serious heartache so but that's why we're here to talk about how we might be able to shift the tide and preach to the choir and maybe uh, get some converts out there in order to help us do that we've brought on a an amazing guest who i am proud to introduce chad how about you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah hi uh my name is chad frederick i'm a PhD in Urban Public Affairs from the University of Louisville and uh, a research associate at uh, the University of Louisville's Center for Sustainable Urban Neighborhoods. I went to school with Ryan at Arizona State University's uh, Master of Urban and Environmental Planning Program. And uh, I just finished a book called uh, America's Addiction to the Automobile, which will be out in the uh, fall of this year from Frederick Publishing. Where will we be able to buy that book? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Uh, I don't actually 
know anything about uh, book publishing, even though I took a course on academic uh, scholarly publishing uh, at Arizona State. Uh, I don't really know. I kind of um, I don't have a mind space for that kind of stuff. <laughs> kind of, I just do my uh, research and uh, focus on this kind of narrow aspect of city life, uh, which is multimodality. Uh, anything outside of that, I, I just uh, I, I take people's words. <laughs> I take my I think I'm okay. So uh, don't challenge. We'll, 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 we'll find that article. We'll find the, the spot to get it, and we'll share it for you. The, the book should be out in uh, September. And, and, I, and I just got um, two more papers published on uh, this commute mode diversity variable, which is the one I, uh, that I've used in one of the local environment, Julian Eddyman's sustainability um, journal. And the another one is in the International Journal of Sustainable Transportation. So we'll both will be coming out fairly shortly. We will definitely share your link on Main Street Mesa for anybody who's interested in picking up that book. What's yeah. that title? Yeah, one? It's, it's eminently readable. So I mean, I, I wrote it so that it could be accessible. One of the main problems with academic research um, is that uh, it, it's inaccessible, and, and you know, the language. Is, is, is terrible. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't recognize the public. Um, uh, you know, I, I had one book on, on biking uh, that I picked up from the research for the book, and they said um, it, it, the, the word they used too many times was assemblages. Now I know what an assemblage is, right? Because I've been taking theory courses in, in sustainability and uh, uh, epistemology and, and, and the rest of it, uh, but. Most people don't know what an assemblage is <laughs> in the way that he was using it. So, uh, that's What's an assemblage? Uh, what is an assemblage? Yes. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it is. <laughs> I know it's French. Okay. Um, and it's, it's French sociology. No, uh, it's, uh, it's a, a network of things that, uh, well, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't want to get into this right now um, because it's sort of off into the weeds. I was, I was hoping down. that there would be a, a six-word or less definition that, that no, would be helpful. No, no. I'm, I'm looking at my, my Deleuze textbook right now. It's, uh, you know, thousands of phones. And, uh, but you, you make a great point about... I don't want to go there right now. <laughs> I don't want to go there right now. You make a great point about uh, making these things accessible, these ideas accessible that... I mean, even the framework of how a city is planned sometimes feels inaccessible to people. And so I sure. think that that's part of the reason that has inspired me to be involved in this podcast is to bring the conversation to a different format, maybe to a different audience, and encourage people that this stuff isn't as intimidating or as convoluted or maybe sure. it's you know complex in, in ways that they didn't think about before, but uh, it may be feel more accessible to them after uh, yeah. hearing the conversation. So. And we're still working on uh, making sure that we're not using much lingo, Jargon. keeping, keeping our, our language level uh, basic. So anyone could be able to listen to this. I have a really hard time letting go of built environment though. And I, <laughs> yeah. it's such, such a succinct way of saying like, you know, the stuff that we change about nature to make right. it work for us. So right. we have a book. Yeah. Back to the book club. Jeff Speck wrote something. So the way that we usually do this is just sort of like roll through and talk about the book in in order of the chapter and what, what came out to us. I think the first thing he talks about is loving cars. Um, We've talked yeah. about that. I love cars. 
Yeah, you love to drive, you just don't love to commute. Yes. I used to be an addict. I, used, I, I, I had every any kind of old, beat-up, giant metal construction, the 55 Pontiac Star Chief, a 70 Chevy Impala, 72 Chevy Impala, a 65 Pontiac Catalina. I, mean, I used to love these old cars, and, and I would uh, beat them up accordingly. Um, but uh, I, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done in Civic now that we have one car in our family, and uh, that's all we need. So Certainly love driving fast and driving on open roads or windy roads. It's it's sort of a dream. So one of the things, you know, he goes on to reemphasize that uh, markets are changing. The 10 steps of walkability, blah, blah, blah. We're going to start with step one, put cars in their place. Full disclosure, I, I do this book in my uh, urban sustainability course, this and uh, Green Metropolis. I guess I have a chance to look at Green Metropolis in script book. So I, I, I'm really familiar with the book, and I use it, um, but I also uh, criticize it a little bit, right? I mean, it's something that, that the notebook is perfect, obviously, right? Um, Except but, yours. Uh, did you guys want to talk about this step one uh, at first, and then we can talk about some other things that might have been missed later on? or you want to get, No, we're, you know, yeah. today is all about step one, um, okay. you know, and really just talking about in the over on page 76, just, you know, mobility and, and how we built our our highway system um, and mm-hmm. how that the creation of the, the highway system has really reemphasized and doubled down on building roads and highways. Um, he talks about right. the Inter- National Interstate and Defensive Highways Act of 56, and sure, sure. that transformed our country. Yeah. It still is. Yeah. Highly focused I mean, I, on freeway development. You're right? certainly right, and all all of the work that's been done on uh, associating the uh, construction of highways with sprawl is it, it, certainly right. Um, uh, but uh, I, I don't think that it was necessary. I don't think the highway bill was necessary, right? I think we could have done we could have done sprawl with side streets. Frankly, I mean, had, imagine a world in which the Highway Act didn't pass and that we didn't have highways. What do you think cities would look like right now, actually? Well, um, I think a great example of that is Tucson, say. Arizona. Um, that's a town that really only has one highway. That's a, the highway that goes through the I-10. Um, and mm-hmm. the city is incredibly sprawled, um, right. but a little bit more compact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's about um, how concentrated you want your your downtown to have as far as a, uh, uh, how far your commuters come into your, your main employers at the hub, uh, because mm-hmm. highways obviously reduce the time that it takes to travel great distances. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, in, in some people's theory, that's a, uh, that's a good thing. You get to capture a larger area of, uh, of talented, uh, productive people to come work at your, your place or, or draw to your, your cultural centers, like, you know, the, whether it be a baseball game or event, but, uh, the unfortunate aspect is that with the, the lack of, uh, the time peeling away, uh, how far you want to live away from those types of things, it does kind of induce that sprawl, right? It encourages sprawl to, to a greater extent. I, I think Chad's... Well, you know, you can, you can, um, so this is Marchetti's constant, right? Are you guys familiar with this? Uh, if, if you look at, um, history, the average commute 
as far back as you want to go, you can go back to ancient Greece. Uh, it's not just European. It's pretty much in any urban area from Babylon on up to Shanghai or whatever. The, the average commute is about an hour. Halfway there, halfway back. No matter what. It doesn't matter what mode you're using. Walking, trains, cars, like that. Um, even in the United States right now, the, the uh, median commute I think is about 25 minutes one way. Right. Um, you can do that on side streets or you can do that on the highway. And, and it's not the distance, it's the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I like, to, I like to think of it in terms of if the highways hadn't been built, it still would be sprawled, but you'd have instead of major inter, you know, interstates, uh, you'd have just larger boulevards, you know, with uh, longer blocks, you know, between lines, uh, and probably as much sprawl um, as you would have otherwise. So I, I don't put too much emphasis on on the highways. I mean, what, sure, it's it's an easy correlation to make, but I, I think um, well, ultimately, but it's saying this on DMT, so who, who knows? It's not just about sprawl, though. That's not the only issue with the Highway Act. You know, I, I will say that it did some amazing things. It brought America closer together, connected this country in ways that would never have happened without that, that even with trains um, wouldn't have brought that together in that way. But the shifting of highways did, had a lot of impact on small towns across the country. Um, downtown Mesa is a great example, the shifting of a highway o- away from the city center, you know, the old, the old traditional highway that just went straight through that was main street mm-hmm. went away. And that was a lot of everybody's customers. But the other yeah. thing is, is the overemphasis or the, the money going to highways. I think that that's taken a huge amount of investment that not only up front but in maintenance. Do you think that even if that hadn't happened, we would, just be spending the money differently on different roads and different ways to build sprawl? Or, other, or cruise missiles? <laughs> They're only uh, a yeah, million um, and a half each. They're fine. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. sure. I mean, I, I'm not saying that uh, the highways are, are innocent or anything. I'm just saying that um, there's that one very narrow point. That it's certainly, it's certainly not all about sprawl. Um, it certainly is about local economies and inter- interstate trade and things like that. Uh, but when it comes to sprawl, I, I don't think that it's necessarily, and that's the key word, necessarily sufficient. I mean, sufficient, certainly not is necessary. I mean, there's other ways we could have gone sprawling uh, without highways. So um, that's what I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and that is all about our pattern of development. Um, highways ameliorated it, but it wasn't the cause of. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could like, put as much blame on uh, land or private land ownership and development, you know, for, for a lot of that as well, um, people who owned, uh, and this is not just with highways, but with railroads as well. We saw this back in the 19th century, um, wherever the railroads were, the property values went out, and that's where you found your, your development. Um, so there's a lot to be said for uh, taking a, uh, a, a, a casting a wide net for culpability <laughs> in yeah. regards to where you build our cities. This is a very interesting um, point about uh, highways and property values. And in my mind, I don't know if it's really covered uh, in enough detail in the book to be satisfying to me, but maybe that's just because I like to dive into some of these nerdier details. Thinking about, you know, supply and demand and what are people really demanding out of their property when it comes to what they need out of life, right? They need access to their jobs. They need access to good schools. They need access to these things that are highly valued in, in our life. And so if 
if highways end up creating more accessibility to these uh, good things um, that people value, then it's done a it's it's done its job in creating more supply of accessible properties. But unfortunately, the the downside of all of it is is a lot of the things that go uncounted for in in most people's minds uh, on sure. a daily basis of, of uh, like how many carbon how much, and this would be a chief among them, you know? Yeah. It, well, and asthma and health, but not only that. I mean, if we look back at economics, we know that a house or a apartment development investment has a higher chance of foreclosure being close to a freeway, even though that those are attractive things when you're building them. They don't actually lead to long-term stability. Right. It's not It's not linear, right? I mean, uh, over time. At, at first, it, it's, you had a lot of property value associated with being your on-ramp uh, when you're initially developing, uh, but then as development comes out, uh, goes out a bit farther away from that off-ramp, it's the newer property values that are somewhat farther away from the gas stations and strip malls and other whatnot uh, that's near the free on-ramp. So those property values that are closer to the start to copy. So it's not entirely right. I mean, these things kind of change, right? Yeah, one, one of the things that I was just thinking popped in my head the other day was, you know, we have this Prop 204, and we're building a brand new freeway through southern, uh, just south of South Mountain in Phoenix. Right. Why aren't people doing a Prop 204 challenge? There's all this research out there that says that being close proximity to a freeway reduces property values. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're supposedly a crazy litigious society, and we need a great case to prove Prop 204. Why not this one? <laughs> Stop a freeway. Mm. Stop Prop 204. Here you go, trying to make Phoenix Portland again, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, first, before we get into that, I, I wanted to say that on um, Specs book on page eighty-seven, he does talk about it's not just freeways, right? So we need to. It's a, I'll quote: uh, When I say highway, you probably picture a limited access six lane with guardrails and all ramps. But the typical American highway is not a freeway, but a state road running right through the middle of your town. Next slide. Okay. So yeah. that, that's what I'm getting at. Where it's not necessarily just the highway. The presence of interstate highway. Yes, we would have found another that. way. That's, what, that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to say. This problem would have happened another way, one way or the other. And it, and it had nothing to, it had little to do with the actual type of road you're using, but more just the, the necessity to build roads in the first place. You see? So, uh, growth. That's kind of like, I think, wicked. Growth will find a way <laughs> to, to get cars oh, in places that don't need to be. Absolutely. I mean, even, you know, before the, the highways were being built through the middle of our cities across the country in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of that happening. Um, I'd shared that map um, from William Bunge, uh, the radical cartography of Detroit that he did to tell the story of the changing Detroit in the 60s. And the most stunning map title I've ever seen in my life, where commuters run over black children on the points, downtown track. And it's literally just a map with uh, it's a point map of uh, fatalities, fatalities and uh, injuries of black children by predominantly white commuters going from downtown out to the suburbs mm-hmm. before the freeways. Yeah, And we fix that problem by bulldozing those communities to put in a freeway. Well, they've actually been sort of bulldozed. Now, have they? Have you seen the, the recent uh, aerial photos of, of Detroit? 
self-bulldozing. It's the, the newest development in uh, the history of cities on, on Earth. Uh, you have the built-up downtown core, and then a first spring, what used to be suburbs, are now vacant lots, right? So it's empty space. And then you've got the second tier and third tier suburbs around us. You've got like this weird uh, reversal of, um, of uh, the monocentric city model, right? Where the, where the, the it's a garden city. land between downtown and the functionally the, the, the first so, so that's kind of bizarre. But yeah, that, that happened. Like I said, one way or another, it's going to happen, right? Yeah, and, and the dollars in that are stunning. Just trying to think about a, how to uh, how to repair that and fix that with all the infrastructure that is gone. Donut right. of disconnect. Donut of despair. Donut of despair. Detroit's donut of despair. Does anybody have heard of this? Uh, no. This term? Yeah. So, uh, you're. you're, you're what you've described, Chad, is uh, I've, mm-hmm. I've read articles titled Detroit's Donut of Despair. Um, yeah. So it's an apt uh, description that you've given, and uh, it's been noted um, by others. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, one of these weird cycles that uh, Detroit is in. And uh, it's funny how, like, I don't know, is this the market trying to correct for something or how the city should have been built out in the first place had there not been all this social tension in Detroit and the, the quote-unquote race riots of the of the 60s? And, uh, and, and, and even before that, actually, I mean, Detroit had, as I'm sure you all are aware, uh, right. white uh, uh, race riots where whites would riot in, I guess, black residents. Um, that was the precursor to the black riots where the, where the, yeah. so, you know, where the blacks were in, in a lot of ways, I think, reacting to a long history of this sort of thing. Um, but we tend to forget that, right? Because like, it's just a, it's just a, a narrative. Uh, it mimics a lot of what we hear today. A lot of what we hear today with uh, regard to uh, police uh, brutality and things like that, that was uh, very commonplace in Detroit in the 40s and 50s. Oh, and it wasn't right. 10 years ago that that was happening in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, you know, so those issues haven't been fo- solved, and the the legacy of redlining and the legacy of segregation still exists physically on our landscape. You know, so we need to go out and we need to start uh, desegregating our white suburbs, um, moving those people in, um, you know, tearing down houses, putting up things, just trying to, you know, desegregate those outside suburbs. Yeah, I don't think that's brawl repair manually. This. <laughs> like, this is a whole other dynamic. Yeah. So the the next part well, is really about. Well, what, real quick, Ryan, I just caught it. Um, you mentioned the uh, point map of the African American children's fatalities, uh, pedestrians. Um, now, that's the kind of information that a lot of people aren't uh, aware of, but that still the um, local histories and the, and the community ideas that are in, in the black uh, communities. So I, what I'm saying is white communities may not know that this is a thing, but, but um, or that might be shocked to find out. Uh, but this is not news to probably anyone that was in those communities at the time. No, I think that's what William Bunge really did is, you know, he used mapping uh, as a radical act to share the truth, but in a in a pointed, provocative, provocative way. Right. Um, You know, the other map that just stuns me and I wish I want to see this for Mesa 
or West Mesa is um, they have another map that's the direction of money transfers in metropolitan Detroit, which basically shows that, you know, the people in the suburbs and the surrounding communities and cities own all of the property in the area. They rent the houses, they rent the businesses, they rent all of those kind of things. So the low income people are paying rent, they're paying, um, they're buying things from those those shops and all of that money gets exported to outside communities. And that's true of Detroit, but now we're just exporting money to East Mesa and Chandler and Gilbert where, you know, I, I call them the pillagers of West Mesa that built here in the sixties and seventies and then just abandoned the community and aren't keeping it up, but are very gladly sucking the rent out and our wealth. Right. Well, and, and cars also do that, right? So this chapter is called "Put Cars in Your Place," um, and uh, because they do serve this really critical, uh, extractive, financially extractive purpose in, in, in our cities, and that is to take money out. I mean, take, yeah, not just you know, not just by to, increasing mobility, but also because of the high cost of that vehicle. Uh, most of that money doesn't stay in the community; it goes to the bank or the insurance company, um, the gas station isn't taking the majority of that money from the gas, even though gas is the least expensive part about owning your car. Yeah, he talks about all the fixed costs of owning a car and how that uh, is really a drain on people. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, not, not to mention the quantifying, uh, I mean, I guess uh, the fungibility of accidents, you know, um, or the risk of how much of that costs to get into an accident. And uh, so, it, and I'm uh, just, well, I don't want to drive you guys off the movies. I mean, I could, if we talk about this kind of stuff, as you can see, I mean, anyone listening to us right now can guess that we you start talking about um, one aspect of automobiles uh, and walkability and, and the rest of it, is, is you can see how easy it is to get off into some tangents because it's also related, right? I mean, and we, we have a real hard time focusing on, on things because... Uh, uh, it's a spider web. Uh, you know, it has so many, it branches off into so many different aspects of life, uh, and it's just kind of inability to to um, see it all at once that makes it very problematic in, in terms of fixing it, right? Because you know, where do you stop drawing the line, and, um, and when you do draw the line somewhere and say, "Here's where we're going to fix it," and why? There's a hundred other things that you could be trying to address, but you know, then your your your, your policy, your city policy. Would be you know ten times longer in pages, right? Yeah, you're probably so, more aware um, of that than most because you just tried to figure out how many words to fit between uh, a bunch of pages and, and a cover, right? So yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so I wanted to touch briefly on um, putting freeways into urban areas uh, real quick. Um, we did that mm-hmm. a little bit, not really in Mesa. We moved it out into our farmland here, um, which really had the opposite effect of what he's talking about. It really took customers out. We were really a small town, um, and so our small town downtown, which was really the regional downtown, died when we built a freeway and uh, let a giant regional mall come in. That that was the one of the death knells for all of West Mesa, because everyone ran to the freeway and ran to the new suburban communities that were being built outside of our downtown. But downtown Phoenix, they shoved that freeway right through the heart of downtown. Um, what do we say? See, the downtown Phoenix I-10 extension, 3,000 homes were torn down. Yeah, it was pretty, 
pretty dramatic times uh, back then and, and not a whole lot of uh, width or, or, or area in which to do it. I mean, that took the uh, the old I-69, I-79 corridors, and so made the right. most of them, and those are pretty old and aging still. And, and now we look at uh, oh, the true. traffic that it's induced today, and then they still think that they need to expand it further. Yeah, and never mind the I-17 that, you know, the came down south of the the Salt River and went straight through a minority community and just really tore that community apart, too. Are you guys aware of anyone trying to quantify the loss of social capital from that highway? I, I haven't um, seen that. There was the, um, oh, my goodness, what was the name of that book? A Bird on Fire talking about the lessons from America's least sustainable city. Um, another oh, group. sure, sure. Um, yeah, 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 I remember that. I want to say Andrew, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's one of those things. And Phoenix fought. We were one of the last cities in the country to get a freeway through our downtown. It wasn't until the mid-80s that they finally found a way to do that, and that included uh, building building the deck park. Um but it's still still sliced our community in half. Yeah, the deck park is a right. great concept, right? Like, so this is... Uh, a great way to try to accommodate a little bit of both, right? We're always trying to find compromises. But then I look at how Phoenix has treated the park deck tunnel since it's been built, and it's completely now created new barriers north and south uh, across I-10 after this huge public investment of having a deck park to allow for the multimodal connectivity across the expressway. Now we have all this big development popping up on the south side of it, creating new barriers for people going right. moving north south and then they put up signs like this is private property do not trespass I, excuse me like there was this huge public investment just north of here to help with connectivity north south and now you're going to plop your big uh, expensive condos in the way and then say no you can't pass they're going to put a hundred million dollars into redoing Gandalf. Here's the, here's the thing with that you mentioned that it was done late like in the, in the 80s there's there were tons of examples of how damaging these kinds of highway developments could be. There's the Rondo neighborhood comes to school in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and, and St. Paul between Minneapolis and downtown, uh, between downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul, there was a, a really thriving middle-class African-American neighborhood called the Rondo neighborhood, and the highway cut right through that neighborhood and split it in two. And um, uh, most of the small businesses were owned by African-Americans, um, and the, the, the housing was really nice stock and really well maintained and um, they had a really thriving community. And when the highway went through there, it, it, it obliterated the social capital there, right? And now that's something that people don't measure because it's kind of so hard to measure. But, but the engineers and the developers in Phoenix who advocated for this highway, they know all this stuff. They know all of this, right? And this is what they do for them. And they can't not, and they, you know, they can't not have heard it. It's not, Ron is not the only example. There's all kinds of them. Jane Jacobs, you know, back in the 1960s, uh, argued against this uh, in coming through Grass Village, right? Uh, Moses' plan. So every planner and developer who has anything to do with highways knows the threats and, and the risks and the damage that it can do. But they can't incorporate that. They're driven by a different kind of set. There's a different set of premises and, and uh, operational logic, and, and that is growth. And, and that kind of on this kind of thing. Which, which takes um, us beautifully into the next yeah. section of induced <laughs> demand. They're, they're incompatible. 
Right. If you growth and an operating logic is incompatible with it can't it can't incorporate even quantifications of loss of social capital. So that stuff is kind of all in deaf ears. Um but anyway, I just thought that was uh, interesting that you said that it was, it was uh, later. I think that was the emblematic then. It kind of proves the point that, you know, you can have all these kinds of examples of loss of social capital from highway building through neighborhoods, uh, and, uh, and it, it doesn't matter, right? That's ultimately the goal. It's, it's, not a, it's not a factor to play a role in that, politically or otherwise. And I think it also comes down to the questions that decision makers are, are asking and uh, the, the pressures that they're responding to, right? Because speaking as a planner who is trying to convey uh, certain ideas about how to evaluate a project uh, and, and analyze it for decision makers, you have to keep in mind what their uh, frame of, of decision making uh, entails. And it's also going back to the 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 document that they approved before, like the, the decision-making body approved this preconceived framework of decision-making that we call a comprehensive plan or a general plan. And, uh, you know, it incorporates so many elements to, to think about when uh, doing your analysis. And if uh, loss of social capital is not uh, a concern on the, on the, the framework that's been pre-approved, it's a, uh, it's a difficult way to try to interject that into your analysis and, and not seem like you're like the lone wolf trying to, to stand in the way of progress, right? So it's, it's right. just a very interesting well, dynamic. Well, you're, you're forced to monetize the loss of social capital, which is hard to do anyway. Um, but, but then with the, the monetization of the loss of social capital reinforces the whole approach that money is the central concern in the first place. So, Kind of by playing by the rules, so to speak, of speaking the language of, of uh, capital investment and investment already before you even get to the numbers diminishes the the impact of social capital. And it's, you know, so yeah, that's, it's a huge problem. I mean, it's, it's a much larger problem than uh, than most academics and uh, critics of the system. And just to emphasize the, the economic part, and I absolutely understand that the economics never tell the full story, and it, it devalues the, the humanity and the, the person-to-person context. But uh, I, had to, I had to look up to see how much we're spending on this South Mountain Freeway. Uh, 22 miles, $1.9 billion, so $86 million a mile. Um, it's very exciting. I'm sure an excellent use of... Two billion dollars. Yeah, and then you, there was. You a, imagine if 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 you put that money, so you say it's you know, some million dollars per per mile. If you had put that same amount of money into the quality of life and the the, the human capital within that a, a one square mile adjacent to what the freeway would go. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine what would happen to a one square mile well, neighborhood? You know, the other thing I think about is that. Our initial light rail investment here in the valley was 21 miles and roughly $2 billion. So the cost is equivalent, but the return on investment that we've seen along the light rail corridor has been tremendous. We've we've seen um, billions upon billions upon billions of dollars of reinvestment. I think the most recent number I heard was around $10 billion of private market development along the light rail. And that's sure, just sure. since t- 2007. And we know the opposite is true about freeways. They move people and cars yeah. very quickly, 
but they don't drive investment, uh, especially in the long term. Yeah, I think it's also what's uh, what's conceived as the mini- minimally viable market. Like, what will the market bear as uh, if I'm going to start to try to sell my widgets uh, for my store? Like, uh, what? How much money do I have in, to invest in that? And so, the 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 level of investment uh, along a, a transit line, like a light rail, is going to look drastically different than an off ramp of an expressway. We don't need to get into all the economics of all that. Uh, it's well beyond the scope of this conversation, but it's it's something that you can you can see. Traffic studies are bullshit. I Dis- love that line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> right. It's that lead, is that what you were saying leads into? What, what have you said that was a, a good segue into, into the next section? Oh, this is your your engineers are a terrible are are looking at the wrong metrics when they're trying to build roads. Mm-hmm. And 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 also trying to solve a. Uh, a long-term uh, issue with uh, some short-term thinking, like I don't know, uh, induced demand is, is is definitely a concept that I want our listeners to come away with a better understanding of. And uh, David, you had that uh, that um, I'm sorry, the definition highlighted. I thought um, so. No, there's just a so I I, I remember enough of the um, the definition uh, to be useful. Uh, it, so induced demand is adding additional lanes to uh, major thoroughfares like highways or boulevards uh, and not to oh, be sure. confused with uh, just ad- additional um, routes of travel that are that are smaller in scope and, and easier for people to cross. So just understanding of how, how this induced demand kind of works to uh, against the pedestrian, against the bicyclist. Um, by adding to already too fat and too fast of thoroughfares. Um, right. The, the idea that expanding a freeway or building a new freeway creates more traffic, but building a more intricate or connected street network actually can help alleviate traffic and increase connectivity. Yeah. It made yeah I, I, more local. I forgot who it was. Um, uh, someone just, uh, came up with this idea that um, – Traffic is, was often thought of as a liquid, right? And, and, but it turns out it's more of a gas, right? Actually, more of a gas. Um, so you can direct a, a, a liquid, but you don't really direct traffic. It's more of a gas. A gas will fill up every space that it can, uh, is what that's available, right? Um, whereas liquid has, it kind of sticks together, right? It's got the surface tension that gas doesn't have. Uh, and, and traffic is more like a gas in that way. Um, so when you build an activity, it disperses the gas into all these different little areas. Um, and when you add uh, highways or roads to highways, or I'm sorry, lanes to highways, um, you just get more water, right? And it's kind of the, the difference between the two conceptions of, of what traffic actually is and sort of a kind of conceptual framework, right? Right. We're not moving the river faster. We're actually building a river you know, it, it's not it's not a, a river metaphor. It's a it's a hot air balloon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, but it gets to that point you said about increasing uh, connectivity uh, serves to disperse the traffic. Well, and yeah. by increasing connectivity, you're also increasing modality. You're increasing the different ways of people that could connect in different ways. They don't have to just use a car. Uh, a car is not the only yeah. mode of transportation that you have at your fingertips. 
Well, this is why I say, in, in, uh, in, in my book, I say uh, the automobile did not replace one mode of transportation. It replaced the diversity. And, and it's that diversity uh, that is really at the heart of sustainability. Yeah, and you're talking because, about diversity of bus and train and walking and biking. Skipping, skipping Yeah. Uh, most, not almost, I mean, I don't know how, it's not an empirical kind of thing. It seems to me that most transportation and planning uh, researchers conceive of the different modes, the non-car modes, as in competition, right? They're, they're looking at them as in substituting for one another, yeah. right? But that's not, that's not really accurate. That's not, I mean, they do do that. I think it's accurate depending what, on the speed. That's how it characterizes them. What characterizes non-automobile transportation is their mutual support. You can bike to a bus station. You walk to a train station. You know, uh, um, if, you, if you can increase walkability, then you can increase the train. You know, they, they work together and in, in, in not, you know, uh, uh, in redundancy. So oh. that redundancy that makes also modality. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like here in the Valley, um, our Valley Metro light rail system that everybody speaks so highly of would not function if it wasn't for our bus network um, as right. As not good as it is, um, those right. <laughs> those buses right. are you know it's that connection, and so people walking you know all bus ride or most bus riders are light rail riders, but not all light rail riders are bus riders. We've discovered uh -huh. here, um, right. but yeah that that connection from from walking to the bus to the light rail or walking to the bus or driving to the light rail or driving to the bus mm -hmm. those things are all. Um, tied together, right. and we do a terrible and, and job frankly, of doing it, of um, discussing frankly, them together. I, I even, um, it, when I talk about multimodality, I, I I do everything except a single automobile, uh, the single automobile, um, I'm sorry, single occupant automobile commute or or or, or trip. Um, I don't care if it's carpooling. I don't care if it's working from home. I don't care if it's uh, walking, biking. I don't care if it's cabs, right? Um, because it's it's, it's not. Um, that the car is, is necessarily evil. It's just that it's overplayed, right? And, and so there's obviously a, a role for, say, a cab to play in a multi-mode urban system. And some elderly people, uh, people with physical disabilities, um, you know, and so on and so forth, uh, people going to get their groceries. You know, the, the bus might not be the best option. And, and so a cab right, or a carpooling or something might fill that gap. So it's, um, it's not that the car is evil. It's, it's just that it's over, it's over a lot. Right. Um, we, we had it do things that it doesn't have to do, and the other things could do as well and better, especially if you can't count, uh, count them. Uh, yeah, we rely on it too much. Physical activity. It's, uh, sure. it's our crutch. So it's that diversity. And, and so when we increase the, uh, the availability of more, even Uber, Lyft, right, these kind of things, they all contribute to the, redundant, uh, the redundancy, the redundant capacity of the urban transportation network. One Even though I, half of the time those those are single occupant vehicles. Yeah, but but, but the advantage is that um, uh, you know it, it's going to go on and, and move somebody else once you're done with it. It's a pretty part of the parking lot. Yeah. So let's somewhere else and move somebody else. Let's quickly. So, I mean, there's more than mar marginal advantage to having those. Like I said, I wouldn't want to replace every single occupant vehicle with a lift, right? Um, I want to replace them all with ho hover cars and jetpacks, but. We're not quite there yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's quickly uh, respond to the statement, the Department of Transportation and its single-minded pursuit of traffic flow has destroyed more American towns than General Sherman. 
Oh, yeah, which page is that on? That's on uh, 87. That's Andres Duaney. It's just, you know, Sherman's not considered a nice guy in most, well, half of the country. Yeah. I mean, so in, in, in my experience, too, in being a planner in growing cities, um, it also destroys the possibility of other sustainable communities, right? Like, so when I see uh, traffic studies uh, talk about trip generations by dwelling unit and not taking into a compass the, the mix and the location and the proximity between where people live and where people are wanting to go, like whether it be the grocery store, their jobs, their uh, coffee shops and all this kind of stuff, they don't think in terms of necessarily the multimodalism and um, the ways that we're talking, right? They, they, they have this uh, concept of there's going to be X number of trips no matter what you do. People are going to get in their car and go there. And uh, so we have to plan for that. And so by planning for that or anticipating that, all you're doing is inducing it or, or making it convenient for people to do that and make that their choice. Well, it's the same thing with parking minimums and parking maximums. There, it's We're pretending we know what people are doing. Um, and the evidence tells us we don't. We're giving them a prescription to actually do it. So St. Jane Jacobs said in uh, one of her last books, here they are, another generation of nice, miseducated young men about to waste their careers in a fake science that cares nothing about evidence, that doesn't ask a fruitful question in the first place, and that, when unexpected evidence turns up anyhow, doesn't pursue it. Right. Just She's vicious. Um, Dark Age Ahead is, is a vicious, depressing book. I'm glad I got it. Well, um, so now, all these things are, all, all these uh, quotes and, and uh, the conceptions of the Department of Transportation and Engineering and, and so forth uh, are, are correct. Um, but uh, I think if you, if you dig at it a while, you'll find out that the cause of that inability for traffic engineers and others to, to conceive this stuff really is rooted in the social sciences uh, in general. Right, and what I mean by that is the social sciences have mapped themselves after the physical sciences, right? Um, and this is problematic in so many different ways. Uh, but, but the big one I think is that um, the physical sciences looks at an interaction between two compounds in a petri dish outside of any kind of context, right? And so they can so that they can identify. Um, the exact mechanisms at work. What exactly is happening between these two things? And, and that's fine to do for the physical sciences, um, but in the social sciences, that interaction between these two elements might not even happen outside the context of the social environment, which is expects. Yeah, the so complexity already, is. When we do like a regression model over uh, of, of this, you know, say, uh, tree line streets and walkability, like how much does uh, your tree line streets impact, you know, the ability to walk like that. Um, already, we've limited ourselves to this kind of narrow relationship uh, that might not even occur in the real world. That was beautiful, Chad. Right. So we set up a model uh, that frankly tells us uh, stuff that doesn't even exist. <laughs> so, so um, and, and that, now that approach to social sciences uh, permeates our thinking about the social world. And so here, again, we're kind of limited in our ability to analyze uh, the stuff. This is kind of the thing you're talking about. Um, and that needs to change. That absolutely needs to change. Uh, and that's probably not going to happen um, really late. I, don't, I doubt the social sciences are going to, uh, the quantitative um, 
positivist and post-positive social factors have changed on their own. Um, there's a, a huge battle raging between qualitative and quantitative uh, uh, researchers and um, paradigms for 50 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I will, I will come uh, a little bit to the engineer's defa- defense. Um, NACTO, the National Association of City Transportation Officials, they have really stepped out of the box and started to think um, in a more comprehensive way. Um, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've not noticed that. I actually think I put a little bit something about um, them in my in my book early on. So yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. But, um, as an institution, I think the social sciences is pretty lethargic. Uh, but there's certainly disciplines within that are starting to uh, branch out a bit. Um, but that does, you know, the, the questions that the way you perceive the world are going to shape the questions that you ask, and therefore the answers that you get. So, uh, and if you're the way you see it is limited, then you're going to get limited answers. Right? Yeah. Just full know. disclosure for you, Chad. I'm going to steal that petri dish uh, analogy uh, from you in the future. So, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So, one of the things that I, I wanted to uh, mention also on that 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 thought process was uh, in my neighborhood, I have a little connector street, speed limits 25 miles an hour. It's pretty wide. Um, it's a uh, uh, long more. Um, and they were restriping it. Uh, they were doing the slurry seal and Mesa does a really good job on making sure our roads are very smooth and nice. Um, does that have anything to do with one of our former mayors owned a uh, paving company? Who knows? <laughs> But our, our roads are really nice, um, and they do a good job on maintaining them. Uh, we also don't have freezes and stuff, so yeah. That coming, helps from, coming from Detroit, man, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I was like, you know what? They're going to restripe that. You know, they're painting. You know, they're putting the tar down. It's going to be completely black, and they're going to have to restripe it. And that's where all these kids are crossing the street to go to our neighborhood uh, school. Um, it's also where they have a bus stop for a different school, and you know, tons of kids are waiting on this on this. It's also a bike connector to get to the East Valley Institute of Technology for all these high school students. I'm like, maybe they could do something simple like making a 10-foot lane um, on that road. You know, it's not going to solve everything, but maybe it might slow down traffic a little bit um, because people speed from speed hump to speed hump on that road. And so I called them, I sent a letter and I said, hey, you know, currently the road is a 14-foot lane. Um, and would you consider converting it to a 10-foot lane? Um, that was crazy. Um, they compromised. They said the, the narrowest lane they could build on a 25-mile-an-hour street was 11-foot lane. Hmm. So it's now an 11-foot lane with a 10-foot parking lane, no bike lane. And uh, <laughs> and I just sat there, and I'm like... They parking Sherman tanks there. It was just stunning, and no parking during school hours too. But you know, it's just oh, it was. I, I felt like you know narrowing the street by three feet was a a win. <laughs> but then I was like, but but ten feet was not a bridge too far. Should I have asked for nine? Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Ask too much, and you'll get what you want. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think the next part is just real briefly talking about freeway uh, removal. Um, Oh, yeah, great. So one of the things that I always try and tie this back to is jobs. We know that transit 
and walkable communities, um, investment and those types of things create way more jobs per dollar. Um, we know that building roads and repairing roads don't create a lot of jobs. Um, so we can look at our um, budget proposal this year nationally and know that mm. we're cutting a lot of the things that create the most jobs and funding a lot of the things that create little jobs um, but cost a lot, like roads and highways and bridges and tunnels. And There seems to be this na uh, natural tension that's, that's building in our, in our current politics that uh, is cities versus the other guys. And uh, it's unfortunate because cities are so fruitful for jobs and our economic uh, well-being and quality of life and culture and uh, social capital. So I just wanted to throw out sort of the idea of the, the natural experiments that have happened. Um, you know, the Atlanta freeway collapse that just happened. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the other, same thing happened in Minneapolis, uh, the freeway over uh, the Mississippi River collapse. Yep. And uh, I'm sorry, wait, was it? Yeah, the Mississippi. Um, and, uh, yeah, the 405 you know. uh, closure in L.A., Carmageddon, sure. um, that never yeah, that yeah. never came. And so all of these cases, right. they're saying again and again that this is going to throw our community into gridlock, into turmoil. It's going to shut us right. down. And then what people ha happens to people is that they find a different way. Mode shift. And right now, if you look at the traffic numbers in Atlanta, the traffic's no worse than it was on any other day. And uh, I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Chad, right, about uh, redundancy being so critical to uh, an urban uh, modes of transportation networks. Yeah, well, again, it goes back, it goes back to the, uh, the fluid versus gas analogy. People aren't going to drive their car up to the point where the freeway ends and then try to get, you know, take the next off-ramp, and then, you know, they're not going to do that. Um, for starters, they all come from different places, right? And all the people that end up at the bridge on 35W that goes across the Mississippi, they, I mean, the Mississippi, they all begin at different places, right? So that means that they, they're, they're going out of their way to hit the freeway and then down the freeway across the river and then some, you know, some other way. So they're going to use, first of all, they might not make the trip, right? They're, they're going down to kill time somewhere. They might not do that. They might not go downtown. They might just go get coffee locally and they might go uh, close shopping in another direction from downtown or, or somewhere, you know, down the street. They might walk to, to the, you know, like in uh, northeast Minneapolis, they have a really nice uh, commercial corridor on uh, uh, Central Avenue where they can go do stuff that they don't have to go downtown. Now, maybe downtown might suffer a little bit, but then, on the other hand, the local area benefits, right? So um, what, what we've learned is that removing a freeway isn't the end of the universe. No, not at all. Um, Buffalo, it improves the universe. It, it absolutely improves the universe. Yeah. Um, Buffalo yeah. is uh, doing this right now in their downtown. They just approved the freeway removal. I was there for the Congress for New Urbanism conference a few years ago, mm -hmm. and it really cut off the downtown from the riverfront. And um, it sounds like that what they're planning is going to really connect the community back to itself. Yeah. Um, well, the question of whether or not some kind of financial interest suffers, I think this is the whole point. The whole point of cities, the whole point of civilization is to have a better quality of life. Now, if you, what, what the economic argument has said is, look, let's, let's sacrifice a little bit of quality of life here, spend quality of life, and then we'll get quality of life at the, at the outside. And it's kind of a really sort of irrational uh, perspective that you can eliminate like, environmental quality or whatever it is, and then get more of it at the other end, right? 
it's very irrational. <laughs> if you if you if you're going to sacrifice quality of life and uh, and and all those other things for financial gain, and then hope that that financial gain turns into more quality of life, well, you you know you're just that's the cart uh, leading the horse. So talking about the cart leading the horse, the on page ninety seven, a step too far, pedestrian <laughs> zones. So yeah, I yeah. hear not, not my favorite section of the book, but yeah, I hear all the time in downtown Mesa. We should just close Main Street to traffic, make it just for the light rail, uh, bikes, and people. And right. I've always sort of bristled at the idea. I mean, it seems like a cool idea, but you know, in all my travels across the planet, not that I'm the most well traveled, but I've been to a few places. I've never really seen one that works. That's not in a city that already had it. Already had it that w- existed right. before cars, and right, right. I don't know if that's a question about the built environment or it's a question of culture or it's yeah. both. Uh, you know, actually, I, I, if I, can, I think it has a lot to do with habits, frankly. Right? I mean, the, the psychology and, and culture is one thing, and and, and certainly uh, uh, the built environment is the other. But you know, this is the other part. Um, that we don't discuss at all, hardly, in the social sciences that has to do with uh, uh, the built environment transportation, that is the psychology of it and, that's, and the habits and the patterns that people get into. Uh, so when, when, if anyone's looking to do like a car-free zone for one weekend in downtown, they're, they're, you're not going to get the, the same results as you would if, it were, if you just went ahead and did it and said it's going to be full-time, Right. You might get a lot of people that go down there just for that one weekend because it's novel. Right, the Cyclovia um, idea. Right, 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 right. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't know what it will be. So when, when, when Seth says that, you know, you're not in Copenhagen, um, that that's kind of says, well, that you can't become Copenhagen. It can't be something like Copenhagen, but you can't. Um, uh, Copenhagen wasn't Copenhagen. Before, you know, it was a, a, I was just looking at a picture of uh, downtown um, Brussels, was it Brussels? Um, They just converted a street, not to full pedestrian, but they just, they narrowed the lanes, they put in street trees. And even that wasn't Brussels, you know, it's a gorgeous result and with tons of other people, but Brussels wasn't Brussels. Yeah, I mean, so a step too far maybe should have been titled a, a step too soon. In, in my opinion, because there's ways that you make that natural transition. Uh, but yeah, if you go from a four lane road with uh, 40 mile per hour traffic to a pedestrian zone, that's doomed to fail. That's that is taking such leaps and bounds towards something. But so downtown Mesa becoming a pedestrian only zone. Um, I think before you, you, you make that leap, you have, you have to ask, does the the traffic, the car traffic through this area, impede uh, something that uh, would otherwise flourish? And I don't see that as being the case. Well, and, you know, downtown Mesa is really the area in our community, one of the few that has already a really good walkable network. Um, it's a great place to walk. It just doesn't have any real density. It's actually one of the least dense areas in Mesa. Um, partly because we tore stuff down, but partly because our pattern of development sent people elsewhere. Um, but maybe if the, the density increased to the point where and density of housing plus density of businesses to create that network 
and that and that interest, maybe it would work if there were the people there to make it happen. I would just think that right now, if we were to do that, businesses would shut down and would have a ghost town, yeah. um, just like it happened in the 70s. That's, that's the reason I say too soon, right? So, like, there's a lot of things that would need to happen first before you make Main Street into a pedestrian-only quarter. So, Chad, um, he talks about yeah. of the 200 or so pedestrian malls created in the U.S., only about 30 remain. Um, I don't I've, – right. I've only been to a couple – um, I've done zero research on this. Um, do you have any relevant experience or knowledge? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to return real quick to the paragraph before that, um, which is that, uh, you know, it's a mistake to think that similar designs will produce similar results and back to the similar places. But for, for starters, um, you have to. You're going to have to change. It's not a matter of whether or not things are more efficient or if you're going to get the right results. Uh, we can't, we literally cannot continue to do what we're doing. Okay, so, so to say that, um, uh, making the change isn't going to be effective, you have to, I, I think you approach it a different way. Not making the change is suicidal, right? From, from a, uh, right, we know uh, we're hurtling towards an unsustainable future. Right, right. right. So, so, so right there, I kind of, I, I kind of question the premise. But, um, the other thing is, uh, to the point you're making uh, with all the pedestrian malls, um, you know, you, you can't just look at uh, uh, these things in, in, in isolation. What the, the reason why a pedestrian mall might fail in a city, to me, is that it didn't uh, uh, account for the need uh, for economic uh, and uh, physical development, right? It, it, they are run contradictory to one another in a lot of ways. If you're putting pedestrian malls in uh, to get uh, financial benefits, then you're probably barking up the wrong tree. You don't, you shouldn't, so when you're, when you're, when you're measuring its efficacy versus the yardstick of, of, of financial and economic growth that is designed for a different kind of development altogether, then of course you're going to fail, right? So um, what the problem with the kind of approach to development is that it doesn't really take into consideration the metropolitan region. It doesn't take into consideration uh, the fact that uh, you can put in one pedestrian mall here, uh, down the street you can put in a giant parking lot. Okay, so I mean, uh, for, for, every, uh, for every mixed, uh, for every multifamily unit you put in the city, there will be three or four single family detached homes. 10 miles away. You see what I'm saying? Um, you, you, you can't fix the problem of automobile dependency by pedestrian malls. You, you, you can't fix, fix the, the, problem. the problem of automobile, automobile dependency by pandering to automobile dependency? <laughs> right. I mean, so you're taking, so the pedestrian mall is, you're carving out space away from a, a development paradigm. You're not addressing the paradigm, you know, and you're, you're kind of borrowing time kind of in a place, time and place. Um, and then, you know, uh, make you feel better about it. You know, oh, we've got a pedestrian mall, so we're more sustainable. But if you don't address the, the, the call it an operational logic, then it's doomed to fail. Right, right? because, I mean, we have, yeah. you know, it's... That's why I call it a paradigm. It is actually, in the even in the Kootenai sense, 
it is it is a true paradigm. Right? You're just you're just development model. You're just collecting something. You're having it to have something. You're not mm-hmm. integrating it into your community and building the things around it that actually support it. It's just a yeah, you're doing it despite all this other stuff. It's a cool <laughs> feather in your hat. Almost like Disneyland, you know, like it's cool and it's a, it is what it is for it's there, but it's this not, it, it's not really something that you live in and, and experience. What's the ratio of parking to actual Disneyland? <laughs> yeah. Is it one to one or is it greater than one to one? It's probably greater than one to one. I mean, especially if you count uh, all the hotels nearby and the, other kind of road infrastructure and gas machines and the rest of it nearby. You know, I mean, it, it is nice to see to look at like more parking spaces per person or open. Oh, it's. I mean, we really need to expand beyond that a little bit just to get the, the full picture of things. I have more parking um, spaces per my person than I have space in my house here in the valley. <laughs> right, right. So at the end of that um, section, he he does touch a little bit on the whole idea of tactical urbanism. He doesn't call it sort of the the paint and pots model of just trying it out for weeks or years. They're doing that in L.A. I know Mexico City has become a leader in that kind of tactical urbanism and just, you know, overnight redoing a a street and uh, people have to live with it. And if after months or a year or two, you can either make it permanent or you can yeah. Undo it. And there's, a, there's also ways to like make your way towards permanency by doing the, a little bit of tacticalism and like building in towards it because cities sometimes look at this and be like, oh man, that's, that's pretty expensive. And if they're not totally on board uh, with this approach yet, it's one way to kind of like nudge them towards it. And you see this happening in Phoenix, actually. I was just downtown yesterday, uh, just uh, around Roosevelt Row and, and First Street. You know, they've got the, the parking lanes striped. Uh, well away from the curb and so they've already they've narrowed the street using the parking lane but they've uh, allowed for uh, a good amount of nothing to happen between the the sidewalk and the curb and where the parking exists but as it's not a protected yeah. bike lane no it's not actually a protected bike lane but what it does at least is is it reserves this area for as that site redevelops like the that uh, frontage would then be able to be improved with the wider sidewalk and maybe some trees and all that and so it's a way to kind of increment build towards what you ultimately want but it's uh, it's a good it's a good first step yeah phoenix has has really they've done a lot of good things um and they've done done a lot of things that have uh, been questionable but at least it's it's progress and trying and and working on it and there's a good group of advocates in downtown phoenix that are working mm-hmm. working hard to do that so the, the last section of the, the book that I wanted to talk about was was really the, the Ivan Illich coming and taking a look, the idea of a foreigner coming to America. Um, you know, we have the long history of that, like Alexis de Tocqueville um, coming at the beginning of our country's history. Uh, but then Ivan Illich just coming and being like, you know, Americans are in the habit of never walking if they can ride or uh, – and a couple other quotes in here that was just like, ah! Right. Uh, the Duke of Orleans said that as uh, in 1798, yeah. Um, which I suppose 
Horses and <laughs> right, yeah, no, 1798. Yeah. Um, yeah. Louis Philippe. Uh, yeah, um, but yeah, we got a certain speed that I was able to create remoteness, which they alone can shriek, uh, shriek, uh, to create distances for all the shrink and only for a few. Um, and this kind of gets to the, uh, the, the how cars produce sprawl by, by virtue of um, uh, an, uh, annihilating. Space, uh, but not time. I mean, it's not time because you're going to drive the same amount of time. Obviously, you drive farther. You know, that's the the one of the arguments about dishwashers and uh, uh, clothes washers is that it the the mechanization or the changing of the technology actually didn't change the amount of time right. done with that. And yeah. in fact, with the advent of clothes washers, all Americans did was started washing our clothes more. And so we spend right. more time... Uh, Jedda's paradox is uh, this statement uh, on that phenomenon, Jedda's paradox. And, and, and now you can go online and find lots of people say, well, Jedda's paradox isn't really true because of this, that, and thing, but they really do kind of miss the point about what Jedda's paradox is. That's exactly what you said. Um, is that there's a tendency, right? You, know, you had a certain level of cleanliness that was appropriate for your floors, uh, with, uh, when, when the broom was a major technology. And then as soon as vacuum came about, then the, the, the amount of funness, the, the acceptable amount of funness increased, right? And it'd be clear. Um, so, and, and technology does do that kind of stuff, you know? Right. And we will say so, that we, we appreciate, uh, dying less frequently from, uh, common household things. Um, also appreciate living slightly longer lives. Um, and I would not, Disagree to a machine that would fold my clothes. Can you close fold and send you? Why wash it off? Ten, ten years, Elon Musk is working on that. If he can get him closer to Mars, he'll he'll build it. Great, great new world, right? Uh, Super favorite the world. They don't prepare anything. Get it new. So, so wash it, Chad, um, your research. You know, you're talking about how the amount of time we've spent in transit hasn't changed. Um, but it, one, well, I, I, in our commute. Our in our commute. In our commute. Our commute time. Overall, yeah, it's, on average, it's about the same. But, you know, he talks about, you know, the, the figure of time spent in the car doesn't, doesn't account for time consumed by other activities dictated by that. Spent in hospital, traffic court, garages, watching commercials, attending consumer education meetings, sure. fixing your car, getting your oil changed, all those other things. Standing in front of a, a dealership drooling, you know, whatever, you know, your, your dream car or, you know, it's all part of the culture and even going to a NASCAR races, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a culture, right? You need to find a way to market that walkability is cool. Uh, back, so pretty good we'll have walking races. Well, well, it's now that's changing. Okay, so here we go uh, back to technology again. When when all of these pedestrian malls failed, right? They failed at a time uh, before there was a, a remigration back to city centers. Uh, that's only recently been happening since maybe the late, I mean the early 2000s, right? Now had that been taking place while these and I'm not saying that, you know, the, you know, I'd say the pedestrian mall, um, but uh, had more people been interested in those kinds of amenities at the time, maybe they would have succeeded, right? But we do have that now, and I call it a kind of a window of opportunity for us to change the paradigm of urban development to um, 
think to as, as Ryan is loves to say leverage. I hate that word, but to leverage this phenomenon. Right? I mean, it's a, and then we're gonna, if we miss this opportunity, then we're just figuring it's okay. Um, but there's a cultural, a, lo- a very like almost a what's this? Uh, like a, a larger cultural shift that on, on a scale of like you know women in the labor force as due to World War II, you know that kind of thing, right? With regards to you know millennials moving back to cities, Th- this absolutely can be can be uh, uh, leveraged, right? Well, um, and, and we should. And and I I think that the other part isn't just you know there's this huge economic argument for this, but I think you you were talking a lot about this. It's a lot more about more than just economics. You know, that ability to to have an increase, you know, by walking places, you actually increase your ability to build social networks. And we know that social networks yeah. are are great ways that you can help your own. Um, oh, what's a non big word for resilience? You know, it strength it strengthens right. your ability that when you hit a hardship, you have a stronger social network that can help you. Do you lose your job or, you know, your acquaintances, you have more acquaintances. Yeah. And those acquaintances are the difference in some cases between life and death or poverty and, and getting by. Yeah. Sure. And our social networks are actually have an economic. You guys might like this uh, idea that I've, I've been um, trying to get. You, you guys know uh, Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and the premise there is that as cities sprawl, um, uh, the social networks, uh, decrease because people spend more time at home and they're more time in their car and, you know, so they, they end up bowling alone and they're sewer bowling leagues and, and whatever. Okay. Well, the research that I do, I found the opposite was actually true, right? Um, when, and this is really strange, uh, so there's another area where my research creates what's called the Simpson paradox, um, where a, a bivariate correlation is reversed, the direction of the relationship is reversed when you introduce a third variable, um, and that third variable is community low diversity. Now, um, so in, in my research, what happens is uh, I have a measure that I got from the uh, uh, county business patterns, right? Um, this data set uh, on the number of civic associations for 10,000 people. Now, the number, now this is it's pretty broad. It includes uh, it includes things like a 4-H and you know bowling leagues and uh, all kinds of stuff. Now, in the suburbs, I find out there's actually more of these kinds of organizations. Uh, when, when there's less uh, lower density, more small, less treatment diversity. It, because you need to. You have to have them. If you don't have them, then you're going to go crazy because you'll be all by yourself. And, and conversely, in the denser inner cities where there's more multimodality, you have fewer civic organizations per 10,000 people. And the reason why, I think, is because you have friends. <laughs> people that you see. You're part of the the, community, those right? exist outside of that. Um, you know, they, you don't need to have an official organization. You don't have to have a community of choice right. yeah, because you already have, have a community. club to, to feel connected to your community. You are connected to your community. Yeah, you don't, you don't need, need a 4-H artificial... club to hang out and talk about animals yeah. and, and caring for animals if you're already doing that in your day-to-day. Yeah. Um, you know, so I went to Los Angeles. I went to New York City for high school, and I kind of moved around a bunch. But I landed in Minneapolis, and I landed in Uptown Minneapolis. And Uptown Minneapolis is a very wonderful, walkable, urban neighborhood. It's beautiful. Um, beautiful. Shops. It's, it's fantastic. And you've got uh, apartments above uh, stores and pizza places and, and you know, um, I mean, uh, 
four or five units per per uh, property um, sometimes. Um, uh, and lovely tree-lined streets, huge elms, right? It's like driving through a, uh, or walking through a corridor of, of the tunnel, actually. A lot of these places, lots of uh, candy, Minneapolis street candy is fantastic. Um, now, I, I didn't know anybody when I moved there, right? Uh, and I just started hanging out in this one little neighborhood and bars and coffee shops and stuff like that. And, you know, I, 20 years, 20, 30 years later, I still have friends from that, that time period. In fact, that's, that's my community in a lot of ways. You know, I'm still friends with that kind of go back to Minneapolis. I, I see all these people and know uh, we have parties and things like that and meet and hang out. Um, it doesn't have to do with civic associations, right? It just has to do with being in people's faces. You're in proximity. You stop, you talk, you're, you open doors for people, you, you, uh, you know, the sidewalks aren't so narrow, so you're going to stop and let them bike by or, or whatever it is. But you don't get any of that kind of connectivity and face-to-face interaction, uh, in the front Yeah. So, um, right. I, you know, in downtown Mesa, it really has that. Uh, and, and, and full, full warning, uh, McHire is here. Hi. Hello. <laughs> uh, I, I would just, you know, finish by saying that downtown Mesa has a lot of those components already. There, there are a lot of sort of like this community of place rather than a community of choice, which I think builds sure. more resilience. You know, you're not going and hanging out only with people that are, have your same interests. You're sharing people that are in the same place. Um, and while downtown Mesa has a long way to go, I think that that community of place, like you were talking about in uptown Minneapolis, is better and more important for building long-lasting communities, building people up out of poverty and strengthening those communities with better networks um, than, yeah. than any club or civic association can ever do. Yeah. And there's, a, there's an issue of authenticity that um, and spontaneity and let's have some go back to the French sociologist might talk about um, creativity and playfulness, right? Um, the ability for the city to to, to um, facilitate uh, creativity is, cannot be underestimated. Um, I don't know how many bands, music bands, came out of that neighborhood in the uh, you know the 90s, tons, right? It's because uh, and you can't get that at the 4-H club because you know the the 4-H club already and all the kinds of organizations. They already have um, canned, prepared for you, the kinds of interactions that you're going to have. Now, now, when you remove this organization from the from the uh, kind of interaction, you get true spontaneity and authenticity. And this is the kind of thing that um, new urbanism and some other these uh, development uh, approaches to development uh, can't really, and they try, and they can't do it. They can't. You can't build authenticity. You really do have to just get out of the way. And I'm not a libertarian, but it's a, but just a lot of things that, that are part of libertarian. Well, it, you uh, can't plan it from... And, and, and that is, you, if the city gets out of the way, right, and it enables these kinds of interactions to happen, then you're going to get, you're going to get interactions that, that produce absolutely creativity, uh, innovation, and this kind of thing. So. I mean, you, you absolutely can't plan these things from 30,000 feet. They have to happen one person to another and there's no way to master plan that. You do have to get out right. of the way. Yeah. In, in fact, the, the whole idea of master planning spontaneity is a contradiction in terms, right? I mean, <laughs> True. Right? Yeah. So it's not even wrong. <laughs> yeah, you put you can you, you can kind of like you know bring the right elements together, but you need to allow them to mix organically and happen organically. But well, yeah, I mean, you, you can avoid taxing them in, in, in either financial or other kinds of ways. I mean, you could. You could well, you can avoid uh, Euclidean zoning that says that you must stay over here, you must stay over here, and, 
Yeah, so there's, you can avoid you can avoid forcing them to use cars. There's, there's you know you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. There's ways you can encourage this kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, but you, you can't um, map it out. You can't like cut on the map of the city a little space where people can interact. Okay, okay, voila, go. You know, interact. What I, what I, what I really want to highlight <laughs> out of, what I really want to highlight out of like the past five minutes of conversation is choice is really plays yeah. into a huge uh, a thing that 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 allows people to be resilient in themselves. And it doesn't matter if you're a person of a lot of means or, or little means when you're given choice of how, how, you know, what space you live in and what, uh, what your, uh, diversity of choice, what your rents could possibly look like of what your, uh, income could look like, what your social network could look like, what, how you get to your jobs and how you get around and, and, and all the choices. And if they're, they're diverse and robust, then you get the opportunity to, to change your circumstances as your circumstances change uh, for you. So that really emphasizes why we need to be following step one, put cars in their place, yes, and why so we need to do that. That so we're Chad, not locked into one choice. Chad, do you have any final thoughts on uh, this chapter? Uh, no, I, I think we're, 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 we're clear. Uh, we're good. I think it's a great book, and uh, it has lots of good stuff to say. I, I do think that in general when we're thinking about these things, we need to cast a broader net, a bit a bit broader if we can. Um, now, not every book can include everything. Uh, that's perfectly true. Uh, but, and it's not Jeff Speck's fault. <laughs> that's, not, that's not possible. You know, let, let's make sure that we're being extra critical about um, our assumptions when it comes to these kinds of things. What kinds of things you find valuable? You know, not, not just because you measure doesn't mean it should be measured. Just because you can't measure doesn't mean it's not important. That kind of stuff. But we're, you know, but with Trump as president, we're on our way <laughs> to nirvana, my friends. So, yeah. uh, well, and I think that this goes back to what you're saying at the beginning, is that it is such a complex topic, and it touches mm-hmm. every aspect of the way that we live. It's so easy to get lost in the weeds, but in some ways yeah. that that intricate network of knowledge and how everything ties together, this is like health. This is so many things that tie in so closely to this. It, there is no easy way to to synthesize this. Yeah. Well, we could we could start by imagining the city not as a place of stagnant buildings and sort of like laid out fixed roads, mm. but actually of movement within those spaces. And people and the connections of people and serving the people right, to their right. quality of life. Buildings and architecture and all that, so roads, and, and this is all very important. Um, however, the, the, the idea is that they're fixed in place, and that we focus on those things because they don't move. It's very easy to look at. But really what we should be doing is seeing the cities as more dynamic, as more as fundamentally about movement and less fundamentally about, dare I say, place, right? Because um, it's about moving through those places, moving to those places, not about the places in the themselves. Well, that's a great Thanks, note to close on. Thank you so much, Chad, for your out. So that's all that we have today. Join us on Facebook or Tumblr at Main Street Mesa. Email your comments to mainstmesa at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. I prefer Podcast Addict for Android. That's actually me that prefers that. We switched that a lot. <laughs> what do you listen to your podcasts on? I actually... Uh, um, Chad, what do you listen to your podcasts on? Do you even listen to podcasts? What's the podcast? No, I mean, I, no, I, I, I've told you guys early on, um, I, like I said, I've got 
I'm going to go great. I mean, I got a couple months. I'm going to go Wonderful. Well, we want to thank you so much, Chad, for joining with us today. Do you have any place for people to find you on the internet, social media, anything that you want to share to oh, the, man. Uh, more people out yeah, there? There's, there's a website that I'm going to design on, uh, what is the name, where WordPress. And uh, WordPress. WordPress. So that's going to be a WordPress, um, and it's critical sustainability. Is the, uh, name in it. But it's not a yet, but you know, it's like you do uh, critical sustainability WordPress. Do you have a domain? In retrospect, I understand that this was utter insanity. Wider, faster, treeless roads not only ruin our public places, they kill people. Taking highway standards and applying them to urban and suburban streets, and even county roads, costs us thousands of lives every year. There is no earthly reason why an engineer would ever design a 14-foot lane for a city block yet we do it continually. Why? The answer is utterly shameful, because that is the standard. Our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and recorded by David Wiersch. Thank you very much for being with us.